Gather round, my nonfiction branding friends. It's time for another campfire edition of Nonfiction Brand, the podcast featuring yours truly, D.P. Knutton. Now, what's a campfire edition? Well, I just decided to call these episodes where I actually read from my new book, Nonfiction Brand, Discover, Craft, and Communicate the Completely True, Completely You Brand You Already Are. I decided to call them campfire editions because, frankly, it's your opportunity to gather around my fireplace and listen to me as I read a section of the book. I've already done this twice, and this is the third one, but it's uh, still a new concept and something I'm trying out, and I think I'm going to be doing every 10 episodes or so of the Nonfiction Brand Podcast, because obviously, I'm here to get you to buy my book. But mostly, I want you to understand in depth the concepts that are contained therein. So, I'm going to go ahead and read, starting on page 28 of the book, about the opportunity on the table. So, grab your favorite beverage, sit back, relax, and listen to what I have to say about the opportunity on the table. As I was writing various sections of this book, I found myself asking why I've become such a passionate advocate for personal branding. Why now? After much internal conversation, I think I've figured it out. The single reason I'm all over this subject is due to a realization I came to after listening to the venerable Gary V. Gary and I go way back, or at least he's been on my radar for years. If I remember correctly, It all started with a blog post on Wired.com about this guy in a small New Jersey liquor store who started posting videos about wine. Back then, the simple act of posting video online was pretty darn difficult. It involved taking the tape from your camcorder, digitizing it via some arcane video workflow, and then uploading it over a glacially slow internet connection to a site that sometimes worked and often didn't. I distinctly remember reading the article then looking up one of his videos on a YouTube channel called Wine Library TV, and being terribly unimpressed. The production quality was that of a hostage video. The host, some guy named Gary Vaynerchuk, had all the camera presence of a death and dismemberment insurance salesman. But boy, he was sure passionate about Merlot, and Cabernet, and just about everything wine. If you see the picture in the book, you'll see that he looks like he was taken hostage by members of the Bordeaux Liberation Front. Take a quantum leap to the Gary V of today and you'll see a world-renowned, highly opinionated thought leader with an authentically foul mouth who keeps on keeping on about the incredible power and opportunity of social media. He was right all the way back on the 17th of May, 2006, when he posted his first Wine Library TV video. He saw the opportunity. I did not. He's globally renowned. And me? Even my dogs won't respond to my commands. Since then, he has made one point over and over and over again. That if you think using social media to create, grow, and communicate your personal brand, small business, or service brand is only for fast-fingered 20-year-old digital natives, you are completely wrong. And I'm not the only one who's heard him say this and actively heeded his call. Later in the book, you'll read about a plumber in his late 50s named Roger Wakefield. 
I was lucky enough to have him as a guest on my nonfiction brand podcast, and he shared something during our conversation that made my jaw drop. This is Roger speaking. I have become a student of social media. I have become a student of video. I have become a student of LinkedIn and YouTube both. A few days later, I'm on the same treadmill watching an online video, and Gary Vee is on there, and he's up in front of the stage talking, and he says, Look, I don't care if you're 20, 50, or 70, you can do this. And brother, I almost fell off the treadmill. I stopped, and I grabbed the treadmill, and I backed it up, and I listened to him say it again. The bad thing is, I needed somebody in New York to tell me it was okay for me to do this. That still blows my mind. Why are we waiting for other people to tell us it is okay to do something? Roger Wakefield, Nonfiction Brand Podcast number 94. Roger heard and reacted to the exact same thing I did and had the same reaction too. Look, I don't care if you're 20, 50, or 70, you can do this. That to me was the sound of 16 tons of opportunity hitting the table. What Gary was talking about was the tremendous opportunity social media gives every single person who has internet access and a halfway decent computer. Social media gives you an essentially free opportunity to engage with the Earth's entire online audience. For the first time in human history, you have the opportunity to tell your personal story to everyone online for the cost of a monthly broadband bill. That's the opportunity that's sitting on the table. Unfortunately, most of us choose to leave it there untouched. Well, guess what? Many young people have picked it up and begun to run with it in a way that puts other generations to shame. It's not their fault some other folk can't be bothered to live in this incredibly powerful new world. The question is, are you? If the answer is no, go ahead and close this book and pass it along to someone who might still have a pulse. When Johannes Gutenberg invented movable type, that changed everything. But the real benefit of that innovation went to the owners of the printing press. With this social media revolution, just about everybody on earth has their own pocket-sized personal printing press in the form of a smartphone. So what are you going to do with your printing press? Create and grow? Or just consume and kvetch? Your age matters not a bit. But your attitude determines the altitude at which you can fly. Don't leave that opportunity just sitting there. Grab your share, take a chance, and dare to be the you you've always wanted to be and already are. Worse than imposter syndrome. By now, everybody's heard about imposter syndrome, right? That thing where even if you've been working diligently in the same business sector for decades, you still have this gnawing suspicion that you don't really belong there. That for all your hard-earned expertise, you still shouldn't be openly sharing your thoughts about it. That there are real experts out there that know everything about the big picture when you're only truly expert in your own little piece of it. Yeah, that imposter syndrome. Well, here's something I've learned over the years. Everyone is a unique combination of expert and amateur. Anyone who says that there is only one right way to do anything is really just revealing that they only know one right way to do the given thing. In fact, the only true originators in any endeavor 
are the ones that creatively bend or break the expert rules of the day. All of this is to say that if you suffer from imposter syndrome, you need to stop. This book is not here to tell you how. There are a ton of books out there that can provide help if you need it. But as far as I'm concerned, the best way to be cured of the malady is to ignore it and start sharing what you know loud and proud. Because what you know was developed over years and what you know is something that others may not. Imposter Syndrome. Why I like it. If imposter syndrome stops you from sharing and demonstrating your expertise, that's bad. But if it keeps you honest, making you work harder and dig deeper, that's actually good. For years, I've had a personal rule of thumb that the second you don't think you're a hack, you are one. Call it my hack axiom. Or haxium. Hmm. I better TM it before some pharmaceutical company does. Haxium. TM. I still think that's 100% true. If you don't think you're a hack, you are one. If you think you're fill-in-the-blank, whatever is perfect, I can absolutely guarantee you're wrong. But if you're always just a little bit paranoid about the data you've included in your report, or the assumptions that underlie your findings, that's going to make you double and even triple check them to ensure their rigor and quality. Fact is, every fill-in-the-blank whatever has a flaw in it somewhere. If imposter syndrome forces you to seek that flaw out, that's a win in my book. But no matter how debilitating this syndrome can be, there's one that's even worse. Expertise, laryngitis. Where imposter syndrome can slow you down, expertise laryngitis stops you altogether. It's that feeling of, yeah, I have ideas I want to share and stuff to say, but what if no one wants to read my blog, view my work, watch my live stream? It's like being a person who never throws a party because you're afraid no one will come. Sound familiar? To many, it does. Could be you're still healing from that 6th grade birthday party where no one came. Or that 7th grade dance where the girl you asked to go with you and she said yes wouldn't even dance one dance with you the entire night. Yes, Beth, I still remember that 45 plus years later, weeping quietly to self. But here's the core reason everyone should be creating and communicating their personal brand. There's only one person with your experience, expertise, and point of view. But... There's an entire world of people out there who might benefit from hearing your unique voice. You have a voice. It deserves to be heard. If you feel like an imposter, welcome to a global club with approximately 7.8 billion members. Remember my hack axiom? A corollary to it is that the only qualification needed to be considered an expert in 90% of business fields is to call yourself one and then demonstrating that you do, in fact, know something about the subject. How do you do that? Read on. That's what this whole book is about. Expertise laryngitis affects way too many people who have the goods to share valuable information for any number of reasons, including, but not limited to, the fact that they do not know how or where to do it, have a lack of personal confidence, 
and really don't know the first thing about getting started, etc. You can literally create an endless list of reasons rationalizing your non-decision decision to sit on the sidelines. Back in the day of media scarcity, that made a fair amount of sense. If you didn't own a printing press, radio, or TV station, newspaper, or magazine, it was terribly difficult to build a personal brand. But now, with blogs, podcasts, YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, et al., the printing press is all yours. And you can create content for any or all of the above whenever you want for a placement cost of zero dollars. When you think of it that way, just how much opportunity are you going to leave on the table by doing absolutely none of it? The opportunity on the table is all yours. All you have to do is put in the work to pick it up. You know that day job you have? The one you love to hate? Where all your energy and vitality are traded away for the comfort of a steady paycheck? Who really benefits from all that? Not you. All that value transfers to the person signing that paycheck. Another favorite axiom of mine hurts a little bit, but learning it early in your career is a whole lot better than discovering it far later when you have a bigger mortgage and fewer options. If you don't own it, it's not yours. One of the reasons I'm so passionate about this personal branding thing can be explained by that simple sentence. The deal most people make with their careers is that if you take the majority of my waking hours, you'll pay me for said hours and generally do right by me. In fact, there was a time when our grandparents and even some parents could start a job right out of school put in 30 years with the same company and retire comfortably. That may have been true then, but it sure ain't now. The Bureau of Labor Statistics recently estimated that the majority of people in their study had held an average of 11.7 jobs between the ages of 18 and 48. Sure, some hopped jobs like rabbits, 22% held 15 jobs or more, and 10% stayed put, in zero to four jobs, but it's pretty clear that the days of the graduation all the way to retirement job is gone. And that brings me back to, if you don't own it, it's not yours. The company you work for, if you don't own it, it's not yours. And you can be gone at any time. What do you own that no one else does? Now you're asking the right question. What is completely yours? All the stuff mentioned above, your voice, experience, expertise, point of view, etc. That's not only uniquely yours. To a specific segment of the global population, it could be incredibly valuable. These are your unique assets, and they could be being shared right now to an entire globe hungry for the goodness you have to offer. Question is, are you? Second question is, why not? To be clear, imposter syndrome can be a good thing, but expertise laryngitis is deadly. Wanting to make sure you're adding value and providing good information in everything you share proves you're not an imposter. And to selfishly, yes, selfishly, 
withhold the very best of what you have to offer by not sharing your voice is a self-deadening disease. But the cure for it is just so easy. Convinced? Good. Let's fill this personal brand prescription and get your expertise voice into shape. The truth about false modesty. True story happened today. I was on a call with a client about the conception, production, and launch of a new podcast for their business, and something happened that is a near-perfect example of what I think of as the false modesty fallacy. It's still early days on this project, and this was the very first time we had discussed anything with the full project team about the podcast, what it should be about, how we could be creating a format for the show, and some thoughts about who would be hosting it on a regular basis, etc., when I asked a question about who the host would be, they instantly named the woman who would be anchoring the show. Then I asked some questions about the show's title, or current lack thereof. They had an initial working title that I think might end up being the actual one, but I followed up with a very important question in my mind. Will the host's name be part of the title? Something like the XYZ podcast with Penny Lane. The woman tapped to host the podcast appeared to be instantly uncomfortable. She explained that as a self-described introvert, she would be more comfortable with her name not being a part of the title. Based on what you've read so far in this book, any guesses as to what my response was? You're missing a huge opportunity to not only raise your personal brand profile, but also boost the perceived value of your company's brand at the same time. Fortunately, the other non-host members of the team agreed. The reason the company is doing the podcast in the first place is to burnish its brand, demonstrate the quality of its principles, and give a human voice and face to the company name. Because here's the thing. If an event or conference is looking for speakers, they are generally looking for people first. Sure, they'd be happy to get the janitor from Google to talk about anything. But if you're from a smaller regional business... They aren't likely to call to see if you've got someone to speak to their group. But if you've got an associate who has proven they are smart through your company's podcast, pleasant and personable through your company's podcast, and really good in public speaking situations through your company's podcast, guess who they're going to want to speak from their stage? Probing further, it was clear that the host's reluctance to have her name associated with the podcast was not fear-related, but due to an admirable, but if you ask me, misguided sense of humility. For all the reasons mentioned in this section, there's just no reason to not take credit for who you are, what you do, and how you do it. And false modesty doesn't do a whole lot of good for anyone, especially you. As has been pointed out in several different places within this book, if you're waiting for someone to give you full credit for your hard work, discipline, professionalism, and high-value thought leadership, you're going to be waiting for a long time. Standing back, modestly longing for the recognition you so richly deserve is a waste of your time, and certainly not indicative of the effort you put into everything else. Modesty is a virtue more dynamic people want you to have so you don't get in their way. I'm dead serious here. And the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Laurel Thatcher Ulrich said it best in a 1997 article that became the title of her 2007 book, Well-Behaved Women Seldom Make History. 
Dr. Ulrich slayed the false modesty dragon with just five words. Is the pen mightier than the sword? It is when it's backed by a brilliant mind wielding the truth. The idea applies not just to women either. Again, if you're waiting for someone to power up the spotlight, then point it at you, it's going to take a while and will probably never happen. Save yourself a lot of time and heartache by getting off your butt and out on the stage and step into your own spotlight. But I'm scared. I know, we all are. But the thing that high-performing folks master is the reprogramming of their perception of fear into excitement. It's a killer psychological hack the pros do, and so can you. How? Simply look at what they do to kill the fear and embrace the excitement. Study, think, and develop your own point of view. The first step is to deeply study whatever you're doing. Notice that I didn't say learn. There's a good reason for that. A lot of people think the definition of the word is synonymous with being taught, and so they seek out a teacher to help them. That's a good strategy for some, but for people like me who like to DIY everything, it's more important to go into study mode as the first step toward doing it yourself. Here's an example. Creating a podcast. It's a super smart content strategy. And a lot of folks want to do one, and they connect with a podcast authority, teacher, to shortcut their way to a finished product. Not a bad way to go, but if you're truly embracing the study stage, you might want to start by studying the masters of podcasting yourself. What makes Joe Rogan's podcast worth $100 million to Spotify? Why are several national public radio podcasts always on the Apple Podcast's most popular top 10 list? What short list of podcasts have you personally experienced that you find the most listenable, entertaining, and informational? And what do they do to make them that way? Having someone else tell you the answers to all the above? That's what teachers do. But answering those questions yourself, because you've deeply studied them and developed your own strongly held point of view, that's when you know you know. Master the fundamentals. Give a player a basketball, and the first thing they want to do is dunk it. It's a spectacular move that garners instant attention. But how can you expect to build a sustainable career without mastering the basic ball-handling skills of the game? I remember having my friend George B. Thomas on the Nonfiction Brand podcast a while back and asking him about his popular video series about HubSpot, the inbound marketing platform. other than crickets. His answer shocked me. Around 75. He went on to say that he was glad he didn't have an audience for the first 40 or so because they were terrible. Now, I'm sure he's exaggerating for effect, but he's right about those early efforts. They just are not going to be as good as the later ones that have the benefit of all the videos that went before. Rather than try to dunk one perfect video... George elected to go the route all masters take, through the muck and mire, constantly trying to upgrade every aspect of the work and performance in order to be truly expert in the subject, the content, and the delivery of the product. George didn't magically poof his way to HubSpot stardom, 
He did it by showing up, practicing hard, and then stepping up to the plate and swinging times 100,000. You know what an at-bat is? If you're American, it's highly likely you do, but if you're not from around here, let me explain. An at-bat is when a baseball player steps up to home plate to take her turn batting against the pitcher. The pitcher throws, the batter swings, and most of the time, the batter misses. For you cricket aficionados out there, it's the same thing that happens between bowler and batter. I bring this up because once you've mastered the fundamentals, it's all a matter of at-bats. One of my favorite podcasts is Grant Baldwin's The Speaker Lab. It's really a great one for anybody interested in becoming a professional speaker, or even a more proficient one. I can't tell you how many episodes of it that I've listened to, but I can tell you that it seemed like every other episode featured a guest who shared the same words of advice to listeners. It's all a matter of at-bats. You need to get in front of an audience as often as possible for many reasons, just a few of which I've listed here. One, to get comfortable in front of people. Two, to develop your stage presence. Three, to find out if what you want to say is what your audience actually wants to hear. Four, to master the equipment you'll be using. Microphone, presentation clicker, projection system. Five, to have a viable plan B when the equipment doesn't work, which is guaranteed to happen. Six, to introduce yourself to audience members who might want to book you. Seven, to build connections and ideally add them to your mailing list. Eight, to try out new material. Nine, the list could go on more or less forever. Fear is flammable. But the most important reason to me is to burn the fear out of you. Preparation will always help you with your confidence, but the irrational fear you may feel associated with public speaking can only be dealt with by confronting it as early and often as you possibly can. A personal example I can point to goes all the way back when I was in year three of my professional career as an advertising copywriter in Atlanta, Georgia. Confession time. I have written, and occasionally still write, folk-style songs. Kind of the modern singer-songwriter thing. Not full-time serious, but back in the day, every Monday night I'd head over to the locally famous open mic at Eddie's Attic Indicator. This very popular event attracted a ton of wannabes just like me, and a few actually ours like John Mayer, Sean Mullins, and Jennifer Nettles of Sugarland. Talk about fear. Try performing a song you wrote while playing the guitar that you taught yourself to play in front of an audience used to seeing future Grammy Award winners, all while stewing in your own juices due to the 100% humidity of Hotlanta. Scared? Every single time. But I went every Monday night for about a year and always signed up to go first. Why? Because I'm a flippin' idiot who wanted to burn, literally burn, the fear of performing under pressure out of myself. You think that high-pressure at-bats exposure therapy worked? Yeah, it did. And has helped me in every new business presentation, speaking event, networking meetup, 
and public-oriented thingamabob ever since. The introvert in me doesn't necessarily enjoy all those things, but I have absolutely no fear of them. According to the Washington Post's Wonk blog, fear of public speaking is the number one most common phobia in America. Can you imagine the freedom you would feel and professional superpower you would have by overcoming this irrational fear? That's exactly what at-bats can do for you and any other thing you'd like to truly master. So grab your bat and step up to the batter's box at every possible opportunity. You're going to do a lot more swinging than hitting at first, but the more you do it, the better you'll get. Focus on your expertise based on your experience. The concept of personal branding is sound, but I think the way some people practice it feels a little bit icky to some, and for good reason. Think about the typical follow your dreams, inspirational quote posting guru wannabe on any of the popular social media channels out there, or the dude flaunting his late model testosterone-fueled roadster covered in fat stacks of cash. And what about the 10 ways to millions beach house owning 20-something that got it all by following these amazing hacks that'll get you a bunch of Benjamins fast? Or worst of all, the fake it till you make it perma smiler who is just ripping off other people's ideas and presenting them as their own. Fact is, all of the above aren't personal brands. They're good old American carnival barkers and snake oil salesmen. While some may attain some level of fame and name recognition, in reality, they are no better than fly-by-night flim-flam artists. They give personal branding a bad image and an even worse name. How can you be sure you'll never be one of them? By being something they can never be. Yourself. There's just so much repetitive and redundant conventional wisdom floating around social media that actually finding anything of value is like digging through a pile of dirt, or worse, looking for the occasional grain of gold. My social media feeds are full of people slinging so much of the same slush back and forth that when I do run across someone who has a well-considered opinion that's backed by data and reinforced by links to other smart people, I immediately cherish that person and add them to my list of trusted and preferred human beings. They provided value, they came off as human, and they created a distinct positive image in my mind, earning a spot in my life. Such people are rare and precious, prized and enthusiastically passed on to others that appreciate the finer things online. These are the personal brands I'm writing about, and the personal brand I want you to discover, craft, and communicate about yourself. How on earth can you do that? by sharing a unique expertise based solely on your hyper-specific experience. Experience and expertise are two words that not only share a great many letters in common, they are inextricably conjoined from the very start. Through your experience, you develop expertise, and the quality of your expertise is founded upon the extent and rigor of your experience. Another way to look at it is, your experience is where you've worked and what you've done, and your expertise is the toolbox of capabilities you developed along the way. So, nonfiction branders, I think that's enough for today. 
I'm going to continue doing these periodically, probably every 10 episodes or so, as I say. But for now, just know that that's a section from my book, Nonfiction Brand. Discover, craft, and communicate the completely true, completely you brand you already are. I hope you'll check it out on Amazon.com or whatever it is, wherever you happen to be. But really, it is the best way to get everything we've been talking about in this podcast for over 160 episodes, all in one place. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and that you'll come back for next week's episode as well. That's it for me today on the Nonfiction Brand Podcast. I am, of course, your host, D.P. Knutton, and I'd love for you to like, subscribe, refer, and review this podcast wherever you get it because that really helps other people find it. Until then, I'll be talking at you again next week. Bye-bye.